I'm Marsha Milgram Dodge, and this is 101 Stage Adaptations. Welcome to 101 Stage Adaptations. I'm your host, Melissa Schmitz. I'm a theater artist and arts administrator, and I wrote my first stage adaptation when I was 22. Now I'm interviewing playwrights about their own adaptations, their creative process, and how they make it all work. Welcome back, everybody. If you are a playwright, I hope you will subscribe to my upcoming monthly newsletter launching in January, which will be a mix of marketing and playwriting tips, and you can sign up at the link in the show notes. Today, we have another installment of what I like to call when the production is the adaptation, and we are talking to a director who took a modern and inclusive approach on a tale as old as time. Marsha Milgram Dodge is a Tony, Drama Desk, and a Stair Award nominated director and choreographer for her stirring and lovingly staged Broadway Kennedy Center revival of Ragtime. Most recently, MMD was the American show director for Tokyo Disneyland's 40th anniversary parade, Harmony in Color. For television, MMD appeared as herself in Disney Plus Encore choreographed The Muppets in an Emmy-winning episode of Sesame Street, and choreographed Elmo and the Noodle Family in Elmo's Wild West video, delighting children of all ages. MMD's bold new approaches to classic plays and musicals, plus a few world premiere musicals, have been seen worldwide from major regional theaters throughout the USA and Canada to Fredericia, Denmark, to Seoul, South Korea, to Blackpool, England, and even at the Royal Opera House in Muscat, Oman. Devoted to developing the next generation of theater artists, her directing musicals workshops are geared for early career directors and actors, as well as for theater lovers. MMD is also wife to Tony, mother to Natasha, and a proud member of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society. Please welcome to the show, Marsha Milgram Dodge. Hello. Hello. How are you, Melissa? I'm great. I'm so excited to talk to you today. <laughs> thank you. Um, Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, how long have you been known as MMD? <laughs> and, and who calls you MMD? I'll tell you, I'll tell you who first called me MMD was the uh, wonderful uh, composer, lyricist of Damn Yankees, Richard Adler. I was working on a musical that he wrote with Bill C. Davis called Off Key. It was at the George Street Playhouse. It was 90-something. And Richard lived on the east side, and he used to swing by, pick me up, and drive me out to New Jersey. And every morning, I'd get in his souped-up, cool little sports car, and he'd say, MMD! And I'd say, RA, how are you today? <laughs> so we started, and then for, it just sort of clicked and stuck. And it's a great shorthand because nobody can spell my name. I'm either Marika, Milgrom, Milgrim, wow. Dogdy. Like, you know, my name gets misspelled all over the place. So I just kind of make it easy for people and just say MMD. That's funny. My name also gets misspelled frequently, which I, I feel like your name is very, you made a face. Exactly. I feel like your name is very easy and straightforward. And I feel like mine is too, but I guess we have the same problem. Yeah, but I I get called Marcia because my mother was fancy when she spelled my name and name you know and spelled it M A R C I A. Mm -hmm. So then people don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I had a director I worked with once, and he called me Marsha Migraine Dodge, but oh. I don't 
think we'll talk about that. Oh, it's wow. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. He thought he was being adorable. Mm. And then Rich, I worked with Rupert Holmes and he used to sing my name to the tune of Strangers in the Night. <laughs> Marsha Milgram Dodge. Like it, <laughs> it flows really well. So, you know, it just depends how uh, it's received, I guess. I love it. Um, well, on this show, I like to start at the very beginning. So, MMD, mm. what is your first theater memory? Wow. I think going to the Fisher Theater when I was a kid and seeing The Wiz before it went to Broadway mm. and also Fiddler on the Roof came around on a national tour. So Fiddler was first because that was probably in the late 60s, early, yeah, late 60s. And I actually saw Zero Mustel. But my, my, my love for theater was the way that theater was portrayed in Hollywood musicals. Mm. So, you know, Shirley Temple movies and watching her tap dance with Bill Robinson. We used to get every Sunday morning this... Um, movie channel that came from Windsor. I drew, I grew up in Detroit. And so every Sunday morning I was glued to the TV to watch the Shirley Temple movies. And then of course, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire movies, but it was all through, you know, being broadcast on this movie channel that loved Hollywood. Mm. Um, so it was theater and dance, yeah. you know, and I can't, my family, like we had a beautiful Kanabi baby grand piano. My sister Carol was uh, really good at playing piano. My sister Paula tried a bit. I tried a bit, was not very good on my left hand. Um, and then segued into tap dancing at the local dance studio, the Julie Adler School of Dance. Um, but I didn't, I didn't do theater like myself until I got to college. Okay. And then what was the transition from doing it in college to making it a career? Um, well, once I started doing it in college, it, it became my passion and I wanted to pursue it professionally. So after graduate, I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and after, and they had no musical theater program back then. So I was kind of finagling credits through dance department and theater department. Um, but uh, I just came to New York and bought Backstage Magazine. And anytime it said TBD, I sent my resume and said, you know, I choreographed all these shows in college and I want to do this professionally. And you know, that's, I, I was very much a grassroots uh, kind of go-getter, you know, and that's how I did it. And by, the, I moved here, I graduated in 77 and by the early eighties, regional theaters started to do musicals. So I never thought I would work outside of New York. I was coming to New York to work in, t in New York, mm. but then all of a sudden I'm choreographing Little Shop of Horrors at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis and on the town at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. And all these magical, wonderful collaborations with really brilliant directors who were 
stepping into the musical theater world, coming out of doing Chekhov and Williams and, you know, all the English plays and Oscar Wilde and everything. So all of a sudden they found themselves in need of a choreographer. And that's, that was my trajectory. I mean, I came here to choreograph. I wanted to be a choreographer on Broadway. Mm. So it's kind of amazing that I made my debut as a director on Broadway, mm. which is like, you know, so that my, my career had, obviously, I was no, I wasn't a kid when I did Broadway, but I had cultivated my career in regional theater through the eighties. I was just hopscotching all over the country and working with people like Doug Wager at Arena, Bob Falls at the Goodman, Des Mackinoff at La Jolla Playhouse. So I was working with some power, you know, powerhouse directors. Yeah. How did you um, make the jump from choreographer to director? I got offered a production of uh, Ain't Misbehaving at a Virginia Stage Company. And uh, I, I, I think I said... I want to do both. Mm-hmm. Like I might've been offered choreography and then I went, I think it, I want to do both. It's a musical review. By then I had already worked with Mal, Richard Malpe on Closer Than Ever. I had done Bill Finn's Romance and Hard Times at the Public. So I felt like I had really gained some skills in that area, especially for a musical review. Mm-hmm. And so um, I gathered an amazing team of designers, including um, uh, Kenny Posner, who is like a major Broadway lighting designer. He's, he did Wicked, et cetera, et cetera. And um, people in their early career, uh, Jim Noon, great set designer. And we, I remember sitting in this apartment imagining how to tell the story of Ain't Misbehaving in a rent party in Harlem when swing was king. And it was like the first time I conceptualized something and um, developed it with my collaborators. And, and that show, I did that production in about 10 different regional theaters. Wow. It, it, yeah, got some attention. And, you know, it was small musicals are mysterious, though. They, the producers and the artistic directors think, oh, it's a small musical, it's only five people. But any musical is a big musical. That's right. <laughs> you know, and I added three ensemble members to it back in the day. So it was, uh, it was, but it was, it was, was great. It took me from, it took me to Cleveland Playhouse for the first time. Mm. I worked at Berkshire Theater Festival. I did it at um, Pittsburgh Public Theater, Huntington Theater in Boston, mm-hmm. Bay Street Theater in Long Island. So it was like, it was a, it was an opportunity that whose time came and went. Let's just say I'm so lucky I got to do it when I did, mm. because of course now I probably wouldn't be offered it. Mm. Why do to you say tell that? A story so so specifically about a black culture. I probably oh. wouldn't be the director. They right. Even though the show was curated and developed by white artists, I believe the story of Fats Waller should be in the hands of black artists right. so that they can really meaningful meaningfully navigate um right. who he was and his impact yeah on american culture for sure and, um i got i've worked with some amazing 
I gave Michael Leon Woolley his equity card and he's uh, the voice in so many Disney animated features now. He's living out in Los Angeles and a beautiful dancer named Kime who was on Broadway in Black and Blue and um, the All Black OK production with Greg Burge, um, Brian Stokes Mitchell. So I've worked mm-hmm. with some incredible and Abdul Hamid Robinson Royal was my music director and um, we had lots of meaningful conversations about Jews and blacks and why we should be more aligned with one another. Mm. Um, our cultures uh, both come from great suffering. And as we can see today, we're in a kind of shitstorm of unfortunate behaviors. But um, I loved working on that show. I loved delving into the culture and to the history of that music and an inspired choreography. It was just such a, such a treat, Mm -hmm. such an opportunity. Um, I'll cherish that one for a long time. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about another big musical you've done, Beauty and the Beast. Um, yeah, it got a Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Di- oh, excuse me, <laughs> we are contractually <laughs> obligated to say Disney's you're... Beauty and the Beast. The licensing says it's Disney's Beauty and the That's Beast. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this uh, this show had its first run uh, at uh, the only theater in Maryland. Your your That's production. Right. Tell me, tell I I know about it, but tell everyone about your production concept. Sure. Um, well, I like to smuggle in some deeper meaning. Yeah. I would say that's probably my mantra is to read the script, read it again and again and again, and really figure out what's underneath it all. And right away, I was struck by the behavior of the... Um, the beast, Mm -hmm. the young prince. Why, why, you know, why was he so dismissive of this enchantress and what was causing him to be such a little beast, right? So I thought there has to be something, um, there had to be some tragedy that befell Mm -hmm. and, Uh, he hasn't been able to reconcile his circumstances. And I immediately thought of Evan Ruggiero and I thought Evan lost his leg at 19 to cancer. He's a peg legged tap dancer. And I started stalking him on YouTube thinking, I hope he can sing (laughs) because I really want, I really want this young privileged prince to have a disability, to have, to, to be challenged in a way that at age 10, he didn't get the nurturing and the counseling and the care because his parents perished. Mm -hmm. Because here's this, here's this young prince being raised by servants. Mm -hmm. There are no parents around. It's not the way Frozen starts with the parents. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of Disney stories start with the, the king and the queen being quite present there, there are no parents mm-hmm. in this one. Um, so I thought, okay, that's what I want to do with the prince. I want to make, I want to 
dig into the backstory and invent this kind of backstory. Um, and then, you know, I'm reading about Belle and I'm reading about, and I'm remembering all the iconic imagery from the animated feature mm -hmm. and which when I saw the Broadway production, you know, was very, uh, specific about branding the IP yep. to what the animated was. So Belle was wearing fully realized versions of the animated clothes mm -hmm. and gold ball gown and the blue dress and all of the, the iconic uh, gestures. Mm -hmm. um, and my husband shouted from the other room, Jade Jones. <laughs> I said, <laughs> I am already on it because I had worked with Jade um, I'd given her her first professional job at Ford's Theater in 2016 on 110 in the Shade. And um, then I saw her do Little Red Riding Hood there and their production of Into the Woods. And I, I know she has the, the, the skills and the, and the vocal chops and all the things, but I also thought, let's shake up the definition of beauty. Let's redefine what it means to be beautiful. And I had really meaningful conversations with Jason Loweth when he asked me to do the show. And I came back with these two big ideas mm -hmm. and um, he said, let's do it. And then I en engaged um, Narelle Sissons to do the set because Narelle is one of those non-literal artists that thinks away from what came before. And my, in addition to smuggling and deeper meaning, I want to tell the story to an audience as if they've never heard or seen it before. Mm -hmm. So for me, on a revival, I open the script imagining that this was written right now in this moment in time. Mm -hmm. And so anything I do has to have context to the world we're living in now. Mm -hmm. So I engaged Narelle and all I said to her was these servants are becoming, uh, uh, is it amorphous? Is that the right word? They're, they're losing their humanness. Yeah. Right. And the, they haven't been cleaning. And so mm -hmm. I thought we're in a dilapidated castle that's had no attention, no love, no, no meaningful, concern mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. And so we started um, investigating a world where that, where we could tell the story in that environment. Mm -hmm. um, so not only was it cast diversely, it was also presented in a very non-Disney um, way. Mm -hmm. And I don't, did you get to see it or did you, have you seen video? I saw clips. Yeah. You saw clips. And yeah. um, when you say it was not presented as Disney, you mean it wasn't like clean cut? <laughs> it wasn't pristine. It wasn't, it was inspired by the animated feature, but it wasn't a copy of what they did on Broadway. In fact, that's not allowed. Licensing doesn't allow that. Okay. Um, but there are, but there's a, but, you know, as a director, our job, is to go in and in and and gather the in, 
intel from the script, music, and lyrics and create a concept and a vision for that production. Copying somebody else's is not in the toolkit. Right. No way. I would never. If I accidentally copy something, it's an accident. Mm-hmm. I don't seek out to copy. That's not directing. Mm. That's, you know, stealing. Right. So I don't do that. If there are if there are rules about a script that the licensor says you must do such and such, then we take that into consideration and we um, work accordingly. But that's rare. Usually if something's licensed, you're given permission to reimagine it. Mm. And so I think anything less is not doing my job. Mm. I can't speak for other people, but for me, Anything less than reimagining it, utilizing all the information you get from the book, music, and lyrics is my job. Mm -hmm. So to infiltrate and smuggle and dig deep and dig underneath is my responsibility. Mm -hmm. So the first preview at the Olney in 21, I saw a lot of black faces in the audience Mm -hmm. and it was very exciting and a little girl shrieked Mm. when Belle came on stage Mm -hmm. and screamed to her mother is that Belle (laughs) and then burst into tears (laughs) and so you know that's that's why you do it so now I can't imagine it done any other way. Right. I watched Evan and Jade just become the best of friends on stage and off and really cultivate a relationship that was so authentic that when they got into the library scene and Belle confesses that the people in the town think she's odd and he looks at her with pure honesty and says, you odd? Like, no way. Like, how could they be? Why would anyone think you're odd? And here's a man with one leg, you know, looking at her with such, like, I'm odd. I don't have a, you know, but the fact that he's a beast is, is, of course, his, you know, big obstacle. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he also is missing a leg is what led him to that place. And so, in the tr- that scene killed me every time I watched it. But then in the transformation, when he sheds the, the, the you know, the fur, mm-hmm. he always had the peg. Mm-hmm. He always had the peg. I didn't hide the peg. She looked at the peg to make sure the peg was there before she looked at his face. And that was not directed. Mm. That was pure Jade. Mm. That was Jade watching this transformation and seeing the beast go away, but she wanted to make sure it was that guy, that guy that she fell in love with. Mm. And that was part of the reason. And so, you know, it just, we found, we found so many beautiful truths lying underneath the surface because of the choices that we made with my team about how we cast it and how we Mm -hmm. designed it. Yeah. And how we develop the relationships. You know, I'll let you ask me a question. Okay. I'll just keep talking. Sure. Did, um, do you, 
form the concept sort of as you go, sort of as like a devising process? Or did you have yeah, an idea like of what you wanted before you began putting it together? No, no, no. It was Jason calling me and saying, how do you, f I had done once the musical for Jason at me only in 2019. And he called, he called me and he said, would you like to do Beauty and the Beast? And I was like, whoa, okay, I'm going to have to think about that. So I read the script and I immediately connected with, I can tell this story really meaningfully for today if, if I get permission to do so, not from the licensor, but from Jason as an artistic director, knowing that this is the Christmas slot. Mm -hmm. People come with a certain sense of expectation about what they're coming to see. Yep. Everything that's in the script we did be our guest was a, you know, 15 minute extravaganza wow. blessings to everybody that worked on this show because it was a lot. Yeah. And, you know, Josh Walden, my co-conspirator in all this, my choreographer, he, uh, they worked so hard in, um, developing the storytelling and be our guest with a small cast, lots of sleight of hand, lots of running off stage as a plate and coming back as a fork. And, you know, <laughs> so, so that we could give the audience a real spectacle of that number, but it was all done in our dilapidated castle. So, you know, there still was this, what I call this hug, these arms around the story mm -hmm. of this sad sort of, uh, 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 misunderstood environment. So it was really, um, quite spectacular when Lumiere gets to, you know, sort of have a moment of the way the things were before mm -hmm. the, the, the spell was brought onto the castle. Yeah. So we delivered all the goods, our, uh, Josh's work on, um, on that number and also on the Gaston sequence was spectacular and so exciting. So you know, we gave, we did all the bells and whistles. We just did them in different packaging. Mm -hmm. you know? I love that. Yeah. What was your relationship to the musical and the movie before you started this project? I didn't have one. I remember seeing it on Broadway because my dear friend, Gary Beach was playing Lumiere. So that was the reason I went and my daughter, my the the show was playing in New York on uh, when nine eleven happened, and I mm -hmm. remember my mother in law taking my then four year old daughter to the theater, and during the enchantress scene, my daughter said, "I can't stay here. This is too scary." And they ended up sitting in Howard Johnson's for two hours. Oh. <laughs> to, yeah, so that my relationship to the show was a little checkered. <laughs> it sure. was. Uh, it was all about Gary, uh, who I just love, love, love. And, you know, I love, I, I had fun at the original production, but it really, for me, it was a human version of the animation yeah, uh, with lots of beautiful Disney magic that only Disney can do. Right. And it's not, I love Disney. I just worked in Tokyo for two months on Tokyo Disneyland's 40th anniversary parade. And I understand the reason behind 
um, making sure the IP is specific and true and honest. But a stage musical that's not produced by Disney doesn't need to adhere to all of those um, uh, rules. And Tom uh, Schumacher knows about this production and, and heard about it and sanctioned it so that we could do it again in 2022. We had to close early because of COVID outbreak in 21. And then Jason called me and said, we're really struggling trying to figure out what to do next year for Christmas. And our marketing director said, why don't we just bring back Beauty and the Beast? (laughs) And I was like, let's do it. Let's bring it back. So we did. And all all but a couple of people returned. So we were really lucky. Mm. You know, we couldn't have done it without Jade and Evan and they were in. So we were so happy to Mm. um, carry on. And we had uh, a beautiful company both times. So, yeah, it was uh, it was really lucky that we got to do it again. But then it made us ineligible for Helen Hayes Awards, which kind of broke my heart mm. because the fact that Jade and Evan didn't get those awards, ah. you know, for the work that they did. And what, really why were they ineligible for it? Because they were canceled in 21 and we were a revival in 20. Okay, okay. So the only person nominated was... Tracy Oliveira for Madame uh, de Grand Bouche mm-hmm. because she was new to the cast. Okay. So I was like, Tracy, you have to go represent us all. So um, wow. she got the nomination, which she's a treasure in the DC area. So um, it was all good, but I was heartbroken mm. that I didn't care for me. I was like, I've won a Helen Hayes award, so I'm good, <laughs> but I really wanted it for Jade and Evan. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You said in an interview that you wanted to rebrand the Disney princess. Um, why was this important to you? And did Disney have to approve your production concept? They didn't. Not that I, I, I never heard anything. It really, it wasn't so much about rebranding the Disney princess as expanding the definition of beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that they've worked very hard to represent in, in, having women of color portray the princesses, but, you know, body size is a whole other issue that the Disney animators, usually if you're a large character, you're not a princess. You're a a comic foil. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, you're an octopus or something. You know what I mean? If you're, yeah. You know, like you're not you're not the leading lady, the you know, in a and the the other amazing thing about our production is that Jade not only being plus size and black is queer. Mm-hmm. So that aspect of who she is authentically that she found love with this beast turns into a prince and could give her heart fully in her own authenticity because friendship was at the base of their relationship shows us that non-binary, you know, is more prevalent than being binary Mm -hmm. in our culture today. Right. Yeah. I love that. I think you had a question for me about the enchantress. I do. I peaked. I do. Do Um, you, do you want me to ask it now or do you? Well, yeah, because it leads in, it leads, I could lead us into that, uh, 
to that question. Yeah. Well, I have, yeah. The enchantress, like, did you, did you create a backstory for her? Like, what is up with her? Because like, she (laughs) comes in, like, you know, she, she turns into this, she beautiful enchantress is what the narrator says. Right. And which is like interesting because I sort of view her as a villain. <laughs> like she, yeah, she, that's scared. She scared the crap out of my daughter. She over punishes. I feel like she over punishes this, this boy who's just rude to her. And so she gives him a life sentence basically. Yeah. But it's interesting because she becomes beautiful and then she becomes a villain, which is like plays against type usually. So like what, yeah. how did you deal well, with we, her? We dealt with them because I, we had a beautiful non-binary performer play the Enchantress. So it was more of leaning into the fairy tale aspect of it, of the not necessarily giving her a backstory per se, but to say that she is a, she is a tool to make this story happen. And we had her a beautiful uh, a beautiful cloak that transformed from the the wreckage of the old lady mm-hmm. who's giving the young prince a flower mm-hmm. and um, the young prince not only dismisses the flower but I also brought the servants in in the fir- in the prologue so you meet uh, Cogsworth and Mrs. Potts in their human form taken care of because I had a wheelchair because this prince was in a wheelchair with one leg. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, Mrs. Potts offers the prince tea. He, he, he's behaving like a beast as a 10 year old prince. And I think the enchantress sees this. And yes, I think the punishment is much harsher than the crime of knocking down a teacup and pushing a rose away. But I think in in the best of fairy tales, the bigger cause is at stake. Yeah. And so she's a facilitator for that. Mm-hmm. So um, so when they transformed to the Enchantress, I was able to put her on point shoes and make her really tall mm. and allow that actor to celebrate their non-binariness. Mm-hmm. And so there was that little layer of meaning attached to it. Mm-hmm. But yes, I could probably do a whole sort of deep dive into the behavior of the enchantress. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but we got to get on with the story, That's right. you know. <laughs> so, That's right. Um, so we did it. We, we, we told it with, and then we brought her back for the transformation. Okay. So when we had our transformation, we had no special effects. Mm -hmm. We did this all old fashioned theater Mm -hmm. and uh, with uh, staging and lighting and, and scenery and costumes. And so for the transformation, a lot of the flatware came dancing across and it was sort of like the the um, Josh choreographed it beautifully. It was kind of like the tornado in the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. you know, when you see uh, all the things flying by Dorothy's window. Yeah. So it had that kind of feel to it. And then, you know, in the climax, 
the beast, all the fur is removed and stands and he's wearing the same clothes. You know, he's not all of a sudden mm -hmm. pretty prince, right? Yeah. He's, he's, he's wearing a tattered shirt. The pants are, you know, too short now because he was wearing them when he was 10. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was a messy result yeah. <laughs> at the end of the transformation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Bell witnesses it all and sees the story of the, of the whole journey sort of flash before her eyes as it's occurring. So mm -hmm. it was quite low tech, but high emotion, mm -hmm. I would say. I love that. When you were yeah. doing the research, did you look at the original fairy tale? Yeah. Like not not Disney, but like original, original fairy tale in your world, yeah, world the building? Yeah, the original, original. And in our research, I think I sent you our link yep. uh, to the website. Yes. We looked at the Cocteau film mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we did research into asylums and mental health yeah. and the symbolism of the rose. And I mean, we, we did a deep dive mm -hmm. and uh, I worked with a dramaturg at uh, the Olney as well, but to put the website together, but the, um, the, pr the work and the, and the, and the um, research I was that's the heavy lifting that I do on every show. I just, as soon as I find out I'm doing something, I just start gathering information, mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't matter if it's Beauty and the Beast or Little Shop of Horrors or On Your Feet, you know, it's like all, everything has a, so much that got them to the place of writing the musical. Right. And, you know, I, it's a little bit of playing catch up in a way because I want to be mm -hmm. as smart as the writers, you know, when I'm working with my designers. So that's great. Yeah. One of the most iconic things about the Disney beauty and the beast is the rose. And in your production, the rose is represented by a stained glass rose window um, that, yep. that changes uh, with the lighting effects as the rose wilts. Um, was this a pre-existing concept or did one of the designers on this project come up with it? That was me and Narelle. I knew I didn't want the rose in the, in the glass and I didn't want to be that literal about it. Mm -hmm. And um, as we were developing the scenery um, and the, and the second level, I knew a staircase would be effective and Narelle was able to design a beautiful staircase that when we went into the scenes that were outside of the castle, the, the stairs receded into the wall to open up the space. Um, and the lair that the, uh, uh, that the beast lived in was on the second level in front of this giant rose window. And every time a petal fell, a light went out on the rose mm -hmm. so that the rose lost all its color it still had its window qualities, but it lost the red rose petals. And it was really fun to work with um, uh, Colin Bills, the lighting designer, to figure out, and with Narelle, to figure out how the petals would fall, mm -hmm. how they would be banked together, and yeah. and the, the dramatic effect of those. And I think it was very effective. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I miss, you know, as a director, I open a show and I'm on the train the next day. Yeah. So I'm not around for all the talkbacks and things that take place during the course of the run. But 
you know, nobody missed any of the Disney branded moments. Right. They all surrendered to this way of storytelling and, and I don't think I ever heard anything about the Rose window other than how great it was. Right. You know? Right. And on stage you can see it. (laughs) Whereas, you know, if it's it's a small prop, then it's hard to really get the idea of what's happening on stage. Yeah. And, and when we went into Belle's room, it was a chair Mm -hmm. and a wardrobe. That was it. That's all that was in Belle's room. So we didn't, I, I really tell stories with what's essential. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to approach um, props and scenery with it has to absolutely be essential for the story. Otherwise, we don't need it. Yeah. So all I needed was a really a place for Belle to plop, to plop right. because she had been through it, right? Yes. And we had to have Madame in there because she had to, sort of reveal herself as being this amorphous wardrobe, mm-hmm. right? Part human, part wardrobe. And then there's a big door and there were two big doors on the side of the set and that became the door to Belle's room. So Mrs. Potts could knock in, mm-hmm. come on in. So there were there were essentials on the, on the set, but all the... The, you know, all the glitz yeah. was filled in by the audience's imagination. You know, mm-hmm. they could fill in the blanks. Did you have real food props for the the dinner scene? Oh, no, there was not okay. real food. Because I was going to ask yeah. what the gray stuff was. Everybody, because like, what is the gray stuff? The gray stuff was pate. <laughs> okay. It was fake, but it was gray pate. I love it. One yeah. uh, production, I uh, I saw I saw a clip of them making the gray stuff with Oreo, crushed up Oreos, and Cool Whip, which just sounds like something we should do more often. Anyway, <laughs> oh yeah, that that should be that should be branded on its own. That's right. right? <laughs> yeah. No. No. Everything's moving too quickly in this in this story, so there yeah. was nothing real, and I don't put liquid on stage when I'm doing a musical because. Sure. <laughs> worst comes to worst, somebody spills and then the dancers yep. go, yeah. go, you know, sliding. So that's smart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Other than other than the the little girl in the audience and opening night, what was the feedback? What other feedback have you gotten from audience members about the show? Oh, well, Jade and Evan became, you know, Instagram sensations and we're getting comments from Europe and Australia Mm. and Germany and, and Ireland and Scotland. I mean, people were, once the stuff got posted on social media, they were far reaching. And then I think the biggest compliment was seeing another production posting their imagery and seeing a plus size bell, Mm -hmm. black bell. So I think it opened the door to, you know, I like to think of when I'm working on a show like the Monty Python drawing cartoon of the skull opening (laughs) and all the stuff flying out of that. I like to, I like to sort of allow myself that insanity in in my imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think that seeing the world respond in the way they did. And it was worldwide um, 
to to Jade as Belle and Evan as the Beast was extraordinary. And working at Disney for Disney in in the post my version of Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. time, they all knew about it. Mm. They were all celebrating it. And in fact, um, I had many meetings with the Disney team um, for Tokyo Disney to try to cast more uh, inclusively and diversely. Mm-hmm. Um, we made we made some attempts at yeah. doing that, although the culture, the Japanese physique is very lean. Yeah. And the bulk of the performers in Tokyo are Japanese. There are a lot of Caucasian uh, uh, performers who play the iconic Caucasian roles. Okay. Um, but I had the opportunity in um, the up sequence on our float. Mm. Uh, we had some just some goofy uh, explorers that were offshoots of the the main character and I said let's cast tall wide short you know mm-hmm. like so we were able to expand a little bit in the casting there and I think that they knew I was the one that you know didn't do the classic version of the show you know that's great are you interested in giving other Disney musicals an MMD makeover? You know, I don't know. I, I, Beauty and the Beast really lent itself to this mm. so, so gorgeously. Yeah. Um, I've done Little Mermaid and, uh, I, didn't this I did Little Mermaid in 2018 and we had a diverse company but was really based on the Broadway casting model Mm. Um, which is what but my which was a white uh Ariel a black Triton um I did some Josh and I did the show at the Muni and we approached it like a Paul Taylor ballet. So we didn't have a lot of scenic mm. uh, uh, land versus sea design. We had the water was depicted by a group of 12 teenagers who wore watery costumes <laughs> um, and, da- and water sleeves. Mm-hmm. And we created the, the water sequences that way. So that wasn't a Disney concept. That was a new concept. So I would say the little mermaid and my, my Ursula was phenomenal. We had uh, puppets. So Ursula sat on a dolly basically. And there were 14 guys um, manipulating the tentacles. They each had two. So, they moved her and the tentacles were like 12 feet tall. Wow. So it was this, you could see it on the Muni um, uh, YouTube. It, it was glorious. And we had, um, uh, yeah, the, the production design, you know, my mantra on that one again was let's tell the story in a fantasy way that serves the, what the Muni size 
and scope can do, but also artful and very kind of poetic. And so we, it wasn't so much in the cast, although Jason Gote played the prince. Oh, and I've also done Cinderella, but that's Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. So I've done some fairy tales and, um, you know, tried to always go in there. I mean, I had fun with Cinderella because I made the, the stepsisters and the stepmother like the Kardashians. <laughs> they were like, they were like, they were so tacky and wrong. But um, hilarious. But we had fun, and I cast uh, uh, diversely on that. I had Michaela Bennett playing Cinderella, which was great. She's a beautiful black uh, singer actor, and um, yeah. But it, you know. The casting diversely must have context. Yeah. And in working on the only production, um, Kevin McAllister came on board as the diversity um, consultant for Beauty and the Beast. And when he said to me, you have a white Maurice and a black bell. How does how do you contextualize? How do we know her mother was black? And so what I did was I had a black Mrs. Potts. Mm-hmm. So in the in the scene where Belle and her father are basically missing the mother, mm-hmm. right? In that beautiful song they do, I brought in the actor who played Mrs. Potts to be the ghost of Belle's mother. Mm-hmm. And so she walked through the scene and had a gesture that she did on Belle's face that then later Mrs. Potts did on Belle's face. So I created a little Wizard of Mm Ozzy kind of connection, but also anyone wondering why her father was white and she was black would see that her mother was black. And so it was a great note from Kevin for me and has really given me um, more tools to navigate my choices when I am casting out of the sort of previous expectation of how things are done. Right. You know, so you really have to read the script. You really have to dig in and make sure that your choices are are true mm-hmm. for the story that you're telling. Yeah. yeah. I think you just answered my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. What is your advice for theater makers who want to take a classic story and create a new stylized version of it? How do they begin to tackle that artistically and make sure that everything tracks? Yeah. You have to read the play, read the play, read the play, read the play, read the play. And, um, you know, it's different now because we're not on paper anymore. But I used to dog ear the pages and scribble in the margins. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and now I do that on, on, on my computer and really underline things and ask questions of your text. And really, I am the queen of why. Like, why is the prince throwing this rose back at this old lady who's just trying to be nice? So Mm -hmm. constantly ask the why. And um, 
And why did he do that? Real, <laughs> what was your reason for why he did that? I think he was lonely and lost and he had no social skills and he, no one there to reprimand him when he did something wrong because the servants weren't his parents mm -hmm. and they weren't, they, they were in charge, but you know, it's different when you throw something and your mom says, if you ever do that again, right. Right. Or takes your hand and the object you threw and looks you in the eye and says, why did you do that? Yeah. Nobody was questioning the bad behavior of this child. And so they were, they were, as a mother, I, I read that scene and I'm like, where's the mother? Mm -hmm. Where, why isn't he being told this is not acceptable behavior? Mm -hmm. And so that led me to, well, maybe he's arrested in his development because no one's been there to nurture him and teach him and, and, you know, take him into adulthood. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, it's constantly asking why of your text, constantly wanting to know and understand deeply, meaningfully why things occur. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's all about relationships, the relationships to each other as characters or the relationship to their environment or to their prop or to the light source, whatever they're doing on stage is all about relationships. Mm -hmm. So as a, a, a young early career director or anyone who wants to take a classic piece, read it as if it's never been done before mm -hmm. and you are the first eyes on it. And don't watch YouTube. <laughs> because those are other people's choices yeah. that have already been made and realized. Yeah. You know, the reason Michael Arden got a Tony for parade was because he did his own original thinking on that piece and he didn't take Harold Prince's production and recreate it. Right. Right. Yeah. When you're asking all these why questions, how much of that is formed before you go into rehearsal and how much of that is done uh, in collaboration with the actors and, and designers? Well, I would say I have to do 100% before I go into rehearsal. And then I have to be flexible and want to be flexible to encourage choices. But the physical production decisions have to be made. It's a weird process. The physical production decisions are made months in advance of rehearsal. Yeah. Because they have to be bid. They have to be priced. Yeah. They have to be built. And so this amazing thing happened with Beauty and the Beast because of our uh, COVID postponement initially. We were supposed to open in 2020. Mm. So when we were postponed, it gave Narelle and me and my designers an opportunity to go back and re-examine some of the decisions we had made mm. because between sort of determining what our physical production was going to be and going into rehearsal, we had another year. And in that year, we had an insurrection at the Capitol and a guy showed up wearing horns that went like this. Mm -hmm. 
And I called Ivanya and I said, we can't do horns going up mm -hmm. for the beast. I will not do that now. We have to make them more like a ram and make them less, less present mm -hmm. on Evan's head because the world, you know, the world shifted mm -hmm. between the time we had sort of drawn the designs of the beast based on history, research, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So we went back in and then we also went back in and talked to Jade and talked to Evan. I had talked to Evan before about his accessibility up and down stairs and things like that. Um, and then we also brought Jade and Evan into the conversation in that, that 2020 when we weren't working, you know, when we weren't in production to also examine other elements of the set that hadn't been built yet. So that was a real, you know, the pandemic as mad as we were, that gave us time to go in and, and re rethink some things. Mm. There were some decorative things that Narelle and I rethought about and, you know, certain things that we uh, were able to take more time. You know, that's the thing. We don't always have enough time. Right. We do it. Right. I do, I do shows at the Muni. I do a run through on day seven, I think. So, you know, I work fast, but in order to work fast in the rehearsal room, you have to do all that prep in advance. Right. So, yes, things will change. Staging, I don't lock down staging. I don't lock down um, uh, the sort of visceral, tan you know, intangible stuff. Mm -hmm. I lock down, there's a staircase here and it has to shift off. Scenery has to come on. I lock that stuff down, but I don't lock down the relationships in the room with characters. You know, Evan's a tap dancer, so I put a little tap step in him for um, in in uh, a, a sequence, so that he could show Belle how quirky and fun he was. So, you know, that kind of stuff happens in the rehearsal room. That's great. You've been a champion of diverse casting throughout your entire career. Why has this been so important to you? And at what point did it just become the way that you did things? Um, wow. You know, I, it's about opportunity more than anything. I did a production of On the Town at Arena Stage and Adrian Lennox played Hildy, the cab driver. And it, it was completely right. And we didn't think we were doing anything, you know, dramatic. We were telling the story with the best people. I remember casting a musical with Bob Falls for the Goodman. And it was an urban story that took place. It's called Book of the Night. And it took place over a 24 hour period in an urban city. And everybody that auditioned, um, we landed on two interracial couples and mm. uh, both black men with white women. And I remember having the conversation about the with the author saying they didn't write it as an interracial couple and I said I've reread the script many many times and there's nothing about an urban story that wouldn't support an interracial couple mm -hmm. race isn't part of the story issues yeah but representing an urban world interracial coupling 
in the 90s seemed appropriate and natural. And Bob and I were like, but they're the most talented people. Mm -hmm. And we can still tell your story in an impactful way and also add this layer for those people in the audience who may think things need to be black or white Mm -hmm. to like allow your story. So I've been sort of smuggling in deeper meaning all along, not necessarily knowing that's what I was doing. Mm. You know what I mean? Because, you know, it was Keith Byron Kirk and Vicki Lewis and they were, they were phenomenal. And it was Jessica Mulaski and Adrian Bailey and they were phenomenal. And it was like, there's no reason not to cast them because they're black. You know what I mean? It was like, Mm -hmm. we're opening it wide because the context of our show isn't, a racial context. I would never recast Ragtime. Ragtime is a show about race. Mm -hmm. You have to have the Irish firemen devastating the black man's car. Like you can't Mm -hmm. all of a sudden put black people in the fire station and make Cole House white. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? You can't flip it around. So when the stories are racially embedded Mm -hmm. then you must follow the demands of the text and the casting Mm -hmm. to tell the story appropriately but in a fairy tale Mm -hmm. or in an urban setting or you know i did a curious incident of the dog in the nighttime and i watch a lot of british uh uh procedural dramas on tv and i would say there's so much in, interracial families in the in the British st- series. Mm-hmm. So when I was casting Curious Incident, I was like, I want I want a more diverse company mm-hmm. than what they did on Broadway. I want more. You know, I would like to have more people of color, and I got it because I made casting kind of go back and really find me more actors of color to depict this world because it just doesn't feel authentic to me otherwise. Right. That's great. Yeah. So I guess, I think I answered your question. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, there, there used to be a conversation that about colorblind casting versus color conscious casting. Yeah. But honestly, I don't, I don't think it can ever be colorblind. Sure. I think it's insulting to the people of color. Right. To say their color isn't important. Right. So color conscious is the only way to do it. For sure. So speaking of opportunities, you were the first woman hired by the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts to direct and choreograph a major musical. Tell the people what year that was. That was 2000. Nine. 2009 you were the first woman to, to direct and choreograph a major musical so i just want i just want people to sit with that i looked it up the the I kennedy know, center opened in 1971 and they waited until 2009 yeah. to hire a woman to direct a major musical so now it doesn't mean that women hadn't gone through the kennedy center as directors and choreographers because the kennedy center is also a presenting house right but as a producing institution, yes, they had hired women to direct, 
but I was the first to direct and choreograph the musical. And I was told this by Peter Marks from the Washington Post over lunch. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't, I didn't even, I was, I couldn't even believe it. Uh, I was like, that can't be right. Was that before you did the job? That was in between, that was between Kennedy Center and Broadway. Got it. He came, he wanted to take me to lunch and talk about the show and what was going to change for Broadway and things like that. Yeah. But basically he was so, he loved the production at the Kennedy Center. He wanted to meet me. And so we had lunch and he told me my budget because I didn't know my budget. And he also told me that little fun fact. And that was, that was was ragtime. Was that, that that was was a show? Ragtime. Yeah. So you've been in business for a long time, been in the business for a long time before <laughs> before that happened, but have things gotten better for women in the arts? Um, ish, I think. I think we're, we're in the diversify your teams discussion. By not necess- by also having more women and more people of color, mm-hmm. so we're still in that conversation. Yes, we are better represented on the New York stages mm-hmm. a little bit, a little bit. But I would say some projects that you think should be directed by women are still being directed by men. Mm-hmm. I might just leave it at that. Sure. <laughs> um, just given the sort of stories that are being told. Right. Right. How did you get the gigs yeah. working on Tokyo Disney and the Muppets? Tell me about that. The Muppets came about, my first time with the Muppets came about after working on a musical of the Little Rascals at Goodspeed Opera House. And the writer was working at Sesame Street and hooked me up. And I choreographed some stuff for the Muppets at Sesame Street. And that was really fun. So that was back in the late 80s of the last century. <laughs> and, um, and then the Disney Tokyo was a lifesaver. My friend Brad Kay wonderful scenic art designer and also a creative director at Disney for the last 20 something years um, called me during the 2020 shutdown and said that he was pitching uh, a parade idea for Tokyo Disneyland and explained Tokyo Disneyland is owned by uh, Oriental Land Company and they license the Disney property. Mm. So it's not the same as China or Paris. Okay. Disney owns those. Got it. So they, they pitched, he pitched a parade um, and asked me to work with him to develop it over the shutdown. So we zoomed during 2020, we zoomed um, several times a, a month developing with a costume designer, Moraine Arada, who came with us to Tokyo Disney and um, a a float 
designer and we started putting our storyboards together. And come time to pitch to the Tokyo team, Brad got furloughed. <laughs> I was like, what no. does that mean? Oh, no. And so I had to do it. And so Ooh. I was on Zoom with Tokyo pitching our parade. And and uh, and anyway, uh, a, few, a few days later, he called me. He goes, we, they picked us. And I was like, good for you. Go to Tokyo. Have a good time. He goes, no, I want you to come with me. And I was like, what am I going to do? Because they have a whole team of directors and choreographers in Tokyo. And he said, no, I want you to, I want you to do what you do, mm. do what you do and do it on the parade. So I was able to, um, uh, lean into the choreography and I brought an amazing, uh, hip hop choreographer, Scotty Wynn with me. And then I did master classes on zoom with the dancers and the choreographers in Tokyo in swing dance and in folklorico. So I was more a producer, I would say. Mm. And I, but although I did get in on that up float because that, that's my jam. I was like, I want to work with those crazy little scouts, yes. you know? So <laughs> I got to do a little swing dance stuff with them, but I was, um, I was the big picture making sure all the pieces fit together person. So, and that was all on Brad. Brad brought me in. Um, and we had met many years ago doing a show together at uh, the Music Circus in, in uh, Sacramento. And we stayed friends. Did a co- and then we did a show in uh, Los Angeles at Reprise. Um, we did How to Succeed, which was really fun. So, yeah. And I, he would call me every while, oh, once in a while and go, you need to be working here. I'm like, how do I get in? Like, ah, I <laughs> Give me a job. Yeah. So I got in during the pandemic, which was amazing. So I worked on it for three years. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So you sent me uh, a one sheet of fun facts about yourself and nobody's done that before. I I love that. Um, Like sometimes we can't fit everything into a bio. So like sending that was really great (laughs) because like I've interviewed lots of people and nobody's ever sent me this. How did you come up with that idea? Was that a publicist tip? Because I love it. No, I was applying for teaching jobs. Um, Again, during 2020, I was reassessing. I'd been in the business 40 plus years. I was like, am I going to still get to do this for the next? Like, I'm not ready to stop. Mm -hmm. But I always come around to academia. I love teaching. Should I apply for some bigger jobs? Also a couple artistic director jobs and things like that. So I just spent a lot of time sort of working on my CV and um, uh, cover letter. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to put like a fun facts. I, I just was like w- looking at something one day and it said facts, F-A-Q-S. And I thought mm-hmm. I should do that. And I could put that little tidbit about being the first woman who directed at the Kennedy Center, mm-hmm. and, you know, and uh so I just started, and then I started thinking about all the people I gave equity cards to and all the people I've had the great honor to work with who are celebrated in theater, you know, design or writing. And, you know, I got to work with Richard Adler and he's the first one to start calling me MMD. And so stuff like, I don't know if that made it to the fun facts. I should put that on there. But, um, you know, stuff like that, that, that I just thought made me look like a, a, cool person to hire. So 
I love that's it. That's where they have to I love it. it. We're all going to do that now. We're all going to create a one sheet of fun facts about ourselves when <laughs> when we amass all these like awards and, and interesting yeah, yeah. opportunities. Um, so you have worked with some huge names in theater and film. I'm going to name a few. Ali Stroker, Billy Porter, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Mitchell, Cloris Leachman, Francis McDormand, Hal Holbrook, Kristen Chenoweth, Jeremy Jordan, Marsha Norman, Michael York. Okay, Michael, I need you all to go Google Michael York, Romeo and Juliet. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) The queen of all queens, you have worked with Julie Andrews. In what capacity did you work with her? I need to know everything. Okay. So Julie, uh, Julie's daughter, Emma, is one of the founding directors of the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor, Long Island. And I started working at the Bay Street Theater in early 2000s, like 2000, I think was my first show. And Emma Walton Hamilton's mom is Julie Andrews. And so... I met Julie at the theater and then they had seen some of my work and Julie and Emma wrote a musical based on a book that they wrote together called Simeon's Gift. And they invited me to work with them on it and direct it. And Julie was going to be the narrator. She was never going to be in it, but she was going to narrate it so that when you sat down in the theater and the lights went down, the first voice you heard was, once upon a time, oh my God. it was Julie Andrews' oh voice. So we spent a lot of time together and, and had meals together and, you know, work sessions. And we just had a lovely, lovely time. But this, I'll give you my favorite Julie Andrews moment. So we did the show in a workshop production in over Thanksgiving uh, one year, you know, one season. Bay Street's a summer theater, so doing something in the winter was unusual, but Julie was available and we said, let's do it. So we did a modest production, fully cast equity production. um, And it was Thanksgiving. So Emma was having everybody at her house for Thanksgiving, including Julie and Ian Frazier, her longtime music director and composer of the show. And we were staying in another house across the bay and across the, I don't know, not the bay, but nearby. And um, we were going to, it was my once a year, I cook. So I was cooking and I was uh, having dinner and we were going to go there for dessert and it was raining. So I called Emma and I said, is there anyone that could come pick us up? Because we need a car. (laughs) Honk, honk. Yes, ma'am. Julie Andrews. (laughs) She said, your driver is here. <laughs> so we all piled into the car and Julie drove us back to Emma's. And then we all watched her concert from that she did in Australia. Um, and I sat next to Julie Andrews watching Julie Andrews. Stop it. Watching herself. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> Julie is such a beautiful, generous, kind, uh, checks her ego at the door doesn't wear her startup like is truly just one of the great human beings of all time and in the shutdown i pitched this idea to bay street 
that I would do an eight-part series called Backstage at Bay Street with Marsha Mogum Dodge. And I would invite members of the cast of all the shows that I've done. And we would do little talks and I would do a PowerPoint. And it was in their educational program. And we did it. And the last one was Julian Emma. And we did a Simeon's Gift. And I had the, most of the cast just show up. I was like, you're not, you're not my talking, you're, I'm not talking to you, but I want you to just show up. And they all came in the waiting room and I like hit admit, 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 admit. And everyone was there and Julie just lost it. Mm. She was just so happy to see everybody. and was just so mm. grateful. It was a sweet, wonderful time. And we just had such a lovely time. So now we're Christmas card buddies. Oh, oh my God. That's the yeah. best. Oh, I love that so much. Um, So you've directed a fabulous stage adaptation, but what are some of your favorite stage adaptations? Oh boy. All the stuff that I've done. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Nobody's going to argue with that. All my shows. All my shows. Um, you know, I love the theater. I, I love, I just came, I just saw Buena Vista Social Club um, at the Atlantic the other night. And, oh, it's it's spectacular. It's fantastic. So um, and that's based on a documentary film. So um, I don't know. I love Sweeney Todd. I love, um, I love the Brits. I loved, I loved seeing the original production of, Amadeus. Mm. Um, I've worked on Merrily We Roll Along. I haven't seen this production, but I have a, I have a, a relationship to that show, a meaningful one, um, with Mr. Sondheim. And mm. I don't know a lot. I, I love everything pretty much, or I hate everything if it's something I've directed and it's not mine. <laughs> so it's like. <laughs> I love it. It's like I've done that show. Oh, I gosh. own that show. It's my show. Like it's hard time. It's hard for me to watch other people's ragtimes. Mm. You know when you yes. spend five years of your life working on something and yes, you know right. Um, but I love going back to stuff. I'm about to do Masterclass, mm. Terrence McNally's play, and I've done it before, but I'm gonna tackle it again. Mm. And so it's fun to actually go back to something when you think you have it all figured out Ooh. and go. Ooh, I have a new actress and yeah. I have this and this and have you cast new it? designers and yeah, it's not announced yet. Okay. So you'll hear, you'll hear about it soon, okay. but somebody very uh, exciting and wonderful. I love it. Um, who I have a long relationship with. So I'm excited. Very cool. Um, but uh, yeah. So, you know, if it's good, I love it. <laughs> if it takes, if it, if I go to the theater and the show starts and I, and I get lost in the story and get swept away. I, there's nothing better. Mm-hmm. If I'm counting the lights mm-hmm. and looking around at how they're doing stuff, then I'm yep. not so enthralled. But usually I'm swept away. Yeah. I have two more theater questions for you. Okay. In your teaching work, what are you noticing about the new generations of theater makers that is different from when you were starting your career? How do you mean, like the actors, the designers? Like, is there or? a different? Is there a generational difference in their personalities, or what they're interested in, or how they work? 
I think that's another podcast. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's, um, there's a lot of um, outside forces at work right now yep. in a lot of development and in the academy, yeah. per se. So I don't know. I'm, it's evolution, yeah. you know? Yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. My final theater question is, if you found a magic lamp with Dionysus inside and he could grant you one theater wish, what would you wish for? Uh, that we got to do my husband's plays somewhere. He's a wonderful playwright and he's a white cis male and having a hard time getting produced. Yeah. I would wish for opportunities to direct his plays. Where can people find his plays? Uh, on that uh, network, you know, the New Play Network. New Play Exchange. New Play Exchange, yeah. And what's his name? He's got a, Anthony Dodge. All right, we'll have that in the show notes for people to check out. Is there a play in particular you want people to read first? Um, well, I'm a huge, well, it's hard because I'm a huge fan of them all. I love uh Venus Flytrap, a femme noir mystery. Ooh. I also love The Mouse and the Mustache, which is his two-hand imagining imagining of Walt Disney and Salvador Dali in a room together. Mm. And uh he also has another play called Falling Lessons, which I think is a really beautiful play about a family navigating um the Byzantine uh a healthcare system for their mom. Mm. Awesome. I'll so have the NPX link in, in the show notes for people to check out. Great. Great. MMD, what is next for you and where can people follow you in your work? Uh, at Marsha Milgram Dodge uh, on Instagram. I'm kind of only there now. I got sent to Facebook jail. I have no idea why and he had to like bump off. And so I've lost my... Yeah, I got to like fix that. Um, but Instagram, I, I tend to post all my business work stuff on there. So follow me there. Very cool. Well, this was so fun. Thank you so much for spending the day with me. I had a great time. Yes. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you for listening to this episode of 101 Stage Adaptations. If you liked it, I hope you'll follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll be notified every time a new episode drops. 101 Stage Adaptations is produced by me, Melissa Schmitz, with the help of Hello Podcast Media. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.